0: So we're continuing with our series, The Christmas Playlist. Christmas music is in the air. You can't avoid it, whether you're shopping or you're turning on the radio in your car or wherever you are, you're going to hear Christmas music. This past week, these are some of the albums that were on my record player. Johnny Mathis, Merry Christmas. Frank Sinatra and Friends, that's a new one I found this summer at a yard sale. Barbara Streisand and Friends. Um, Those of you that remember Gomer Pyle, uh, he's on there singing with an amazing voice. You'd never think that that voice could come out of that goofy guy, but uh, he loved to sing gospel songs as well. So those were some of the things I was listening to. Just for fun, we're going to have a Name That Carol quiz as you get started. As soon as you know the name of the carol, shout it out. You can just fly through these. As soon as you hear it, Elena, go to the next one. Got it. it. Nice. Sometimes you have to sing it in your head, don't you, Till you get to the title? That's what I have to do. Good. Yep. Here's a tough one. Nice. In the bleak midwinter. Mark going for the... <laughs> That's the Daily Double. He got it. <laughs> So we love, we love Christmas music. I love planning out these worship services with Mark and thinking about how many songs we can fit into the worship service, and there's always ones that we want to add. So let me throw out this commercial early. Christmas Eve is going to be tons of additional songs, so if we didn't sing it on one of these four Advent Sundays, come back Christmas Eve because hopefully we'll be able to sing it then. The music of Christmas for me brings back happy memories when I put on those Uh, Great songs of Christmas albums um, from the 60s and 70s. Some of them came out even before I was born, but it just brings me back to Montclair, New Jersey, hearing those records. (sighs) Sorry, (laughs) at home, thinking about parents that are not here. My pop is not here anymore, but those are happy memories, even though I'm crying right now. It brings back good times, brings back memories of joy. But we don't want to just look back and think nostalgically about Christmas. We want to look forward. We want to look forward to what God promised to the world then and the promises that are still coming, the things that are yet to be fulfilled. Through our four weeks of Advent, we're exploring a Christmas playlist. And they are four songs from the Gospel of Luke. They're not songs that are in our hymn book, there are pieces of these songs in there, but four people who experienced God and they broke out into song or prayer. And so today um, we're looking at Zachariah's song. It's track two. Last week was Mary's song, and you can go back to our website or to YouTube and you can catch up on that one if you missed it. I mentioned a book out at the Welcome Center. Who's picked one of these up? Raise your hand if you have one already. If you haven't, make sure you grab one. There's one for at least every family, and if you want to take an extra one home to someone and say, hey, read this and come to my church, take it with you. We'll order more if we need them. But it's just been a really great book that I've been enjoying reading, and that's um, what our sermon series are based on. So today, Zachariah's song. Next week is the angel's song, and then Simeon's song is going to wrap it up before we go to Christmas Eve. In your bulletin, in addition to some announcements about upcoming events, the backside of that insert has a place that you can take notes and you can jot down some of your own thoughts. Um, If you are an active learner, that means that you want to be part of what's happening, right? So instead of just listening, you're writing down some things. Maybe ask yourself some questions or other verses that come to mind or whatever is going through your head. It's a place that you can capture some thoughts and see what god is having for you to learn this morning if you're watching online you can go to faithlife.com Baptist, and it has all of these slides as well so you can be following along if you're watching with us and greetings to different parts of the country Uh, those of you that are at home not feeling well or those of you that just don't live nearby uh, we're happy to have you with us for our advent service today the beginning of Luke chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. You can grab a Bible in the pew in front of you or turn to your own. Luke 1, 5 to 24, tells us about a priest named Zechariah. He served faithfully in the temple in Jerusalem. He and his wife Elizabeth were very old, even older than me. But they had no children. They had no grandchildren. The Bible tells us that Elizabeth was unable to bear children. And then a supernatural event occurred. While Zachariah was serving in the temple, an angel from God appeared and told him that his prayer was heard and that he would have a son. That tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a son, someone to carry on the family name, perhaps a son to go into ministry and serve in the temple. That had been the prayer of their lives. They continued to pray it, and in their old age, God answered it and said, "You will have a son." You should name him John, because he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Last week, we heard about an angel coming to tell Mary that she was going to give birth to the Son of God, but six months before that happened. Zechariah and Elizabeth had another message. You're going to give birth to the forerunner, the prophet who's going to proclaim the Messiah is coming. Get ready. Make way for the Messiah. Repent of your sins. Trust in God. He is fulfilling his promises. And so as we look at his life and his prayer, his song today, our question is, why do you need God? Why do you need God? As I read Zechariah's song of praise and prophecy, listen for two key words that are at the heart of Christmas. We're in Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 67 down to the end of the chapter. You can follow along on the screen or read in your Bible. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Right at the beginning in verse 68, Zechariah said that the Lord God has visited and redeemed his people. These key words tell us a lot about why any of these events needed to happen. It was a visit with purpose. When God the Father sent his Son, the Messiah, to the world, he visited with purpose. God the Creator came to the earth, he created something he made out of nothing. He spoke into existence, and he came to visit the earth not just to look around not to see what was going on he didn't come for good food he didn't come for fellowship he came to redeem his people those of you that are as old as i am or close would know that a redemption center is where you bring your snh stamps remember those You fill up your little books and you bring them to the redemption center. You redeem your coupons. You buy something with those coupons. Or today, our redemption centers are where we bring our cans, right? We bring our cans and we get our money back that the government was so kind to give us. To redeem means to pay for something, to free it from captivity. So when you go to that place, you're freeing your money and bringing it back to you by... Offering up your cans. Much earlier in Israel's history, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. Joseph was carried into Egypt as a slave. He was blessed. They lived there. They grew. They multiplied. And then there was a Pharaoh who didn't know God. And he turned the Israelites into slaves. And so God had a plan for how to redeem his people, how to save them from slavery. He paid the price for them so that they could be set free. And God brought a number of plagues to Egypt so that they would recognize that God was more powerful than anything they knew. And the final judgment was the firstborn in the household would die. The Bible says the angel of the Lord would pass over all of Egypt, and the firstborn, whether it was cattle or a person, firstborn male would die in that household. But, but, For his people, if you sacrificed a perfect lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, the top and the sides, which we recognize are similar to Christ's blood on the cross, the top and the two sides, if you were in that house and underneath the covering of that blood, then you were safe, nothing would happen to you or your family, but only if you believed God, only if you obeyed and went into the protection of that house. They were redeemed. They were freed from slavery. God brought his people out of slavery, and the blood of the lamb was the price of their freedom. Each household sacrificed that lamb. And just a few weeks back, we saw Jesus celebrating that Passover, the remembrance of that time when they were freed And the Bible tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was the perfect lamb of God, sinless, spotless, not a single bone broken. But he had to be sacrificed. He had to bleed and die to forgive our sins, to free us from the bondage of sin. In verse 77, Zechariah says, You're my son. You will give knowledge of salvation to my people, to the forgiveness of their sins. He was letting people know how they could be saved. That's what John was preaching. The Messiah is coming. Believe in him, repent of your sins, and you can be saved. The Messiah was coming not to free his people from Rome, but to free them from sin. And today we have that exact same need. We all need to be freed from sin. Because as I said in our communion discussion, we are all born at odds with God. We're born at war with God. Our hearts want to do what we want to do. And God tells us, there's a better way. I made you. I know how you work. I know what's best for you. Follow me. Follow my word. I've given you my son to forgive your sins to have peace with me so that you can follow me all your days, but you need to come to Jesus. Sin is not a popular topic. It's not something we often talk about at Christmas time other than saying the kids who have been naughty get what in their stockings? Coal. If it was a cold winter, that might have been a gift, right? Getting coal in your stocking. But those who didn't get coal would get fruit or toys or candy or something else. So that's as close as we come to talking about sin. And what do we call it? Naughty, right? We have the naughty and nice list. We don't say rotten little sinners. <laughs> we say, you've been naughty. Mom and dad might think something different about their naughtiness. But we even just make it a, a cute word like that, right? Just because we want to soften the blow of Sin. Sin is choosing my way instead of God's way. Sin is choosing to obey what I want instead of what God wants. Our world doesn't want to hear that anything they're doing is wrong. It's like the word wrong is just completely gone from our vocabulary. Do whatever you want, you can have whatever you want. Your desires are perfectly fine. If it's going to make you happy, it must be good. That's what our world is telling us. And unfortunately, a lot of churches have stopped talking about sin. They say the same thing. God just wants you to be happy. And whatever it takes to be happy, that must be good. Do that. Even if it's disobeying God's word. Even if it's ignoring what he has said we need to do. But it's even deeper than that. Do you think of a list of do's and don'ts when you think of sin? Here's the things that I need to avoid, and here's the things I should be doing, and otherwise I'm doing okay. Well, we learned that sin is right at the core of our hearts. We want the things we want because we want them. And we ignore what God says. Alistair Begg, in his book that we're sharing with you, said, Sin is essentially me putting myself where God deserves to be, in the place of authority, majesty, running my own life, charting my own course. Putting myself in the place where God deserves to be. And doesn't that sound a little bit like our American spirit? I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to go where I need to go. And we left God out of the equation. God always wants what's best for us. So when he tells us to go somewhere, that's going to be best. It may be hard, but it's going to be best. Putting myself where God deserves to be. When we sin, we're saying to God, I don't want you. I don't need your guidance. I'm not going to listen to your commands. I'm not going to listen to your word. I'm calling the shots. God I'm doing fine. I don't need you. Literally, the word sin means missing the mark. And it was originally an archery term. So you're aiming at a target and you shoot for the bullseye, right? That's the goal, hitting the very center of the target. And when you miss, that word was sin. You missed the mark. You missed the target. God says our target is obeying him. It's perfect righteousness. And we miss the mark all the time. Occasionally, we hit the target. But throughout every day of our lives, we are missing the mark of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. So whether you're aiming an arrow or a gun at a target, you're missing the mark, or you're kicking a field goal, and it looks so good Until the last second, when it veers off just a little bit, you were aiming for it, you were trying, but you didn't get it through the uprights. That's another picture of sin. And if I stood out on the Bills field and attempted a field goal, even though I played soccer, I would probably kick the ball and it would just drop short of the goal. It might have been lined up perfectly, but it probably wouldn't go 60, 70 yards. I doubt I could kick that far. I'd probably pull something if I did anyway. We just picture yourself all lined up on that field. We're all aiming for the same thing. And you might get really close, but you're just as far off as I am if you don't get it through the uprights. So that's what we do. We compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or this person at work. They're much more sinful than I am. But we're all missing that mark. The Bible says in Romans 3, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. When it comes up to measuring to his glory, we all miss the mark. Could be by an inch, could be by a mile, but it's still missing the mark. It may be intentional. We just decide this is what we're going to do and we don't care. Or we may be trying really hard, but we still don't measure up to that perfect standard. The Bible says that we are all slaves to sin. When we sin, we are choosing to disobey God. We're choosing to do it our way instead of God's way. And the Bible also describes it as being trapped or snared. Sin is there waiting for us, waiting to pull us in. We just can't escape its pull. If that's all we talked about this morning, just talked about how horrible sin was, you would leave and you would be no better off. Because you could say, yeah, I know, I'm not a great person. I don't do all the things perfectly. I can't do everything right. That's really depressing. But God didn't leave us there. There's hope and there's peace coming. Zechariah reminds us that we are also spoiled and separated. Our sin has an effect. It's not just a few bad habits that you need to kick and that you keep trying. If I asked you for the main problems in the world today, or even if narrowing it down to our country, you might say, extreme poverty. There's so many people that don't have enough money to put a house, a roof over their heads, or food on the table. Poverty is one of the world's greatest problems. Or you could say it's a lack of education. If people had a better education, then they could earn a better wage and they could take care of those problems. We could point to racial injustices. We could point to differences between classes, even though we're a classless society, we would look at the haves and the have-nots. And if if we could only fix that, then everything would be great. Or getting down to the individual level, if I only felt better about myself, if I had a little bit of self-esteem, if I had more self-worth, if my parents had been cheerleaders instead of just knocking me down left and right, if I only felt a little better, then I would do better. I could just materialize all of these things by positive thinking. If those were the main problems in the world, then why do the wealthy, the prosperous, the famous, still feel empty? Why are their lives not perfect? Why do they still have to go to counseling every week and and pour their hearts out to somebody? Why do they have to rely on something to make them feel better if having all of those things is what's going to bring us joy. Why are suicides rising? Why haven't we solved all of these problems when we have such a great government and we have science, right? Science fixes everything. We know everything, don't we? This is the 21st century. Don't we know how to do everything at this point? We can fix anything with science. Our greatest problem is not those things. Those are all just examples of the effects of the greatest problem in the world, and that is sin. When we choose our way instead of God's way, it creates alienation, not only between me and God, but between me and other people. If we're all running around just wanting what's best for ourselves, that causes strife between people. It causes brokenness. It causes abuse it causes conflict, not just between individuals, but between nations, between larger groups of people, and then even in our own hearts. The lies we tell, the anger we display, the envy and bitterness that just hangs on and has a grip on our hearts makes us mad at other people. It affects everything. It spoils our relationships and it separates us from those people because. We just want what's best for ourselves and they want what's best for themselves and we're we're just continually missing. While all of this spoiling and separation is devastating for us personally, the most serious effect is that it cripples my ability to know God and to live with him, to have a life that honors him, that looks for what he wants first. I'm separated from God today And I will be separated from him for eternity if something doesn't happen. What can fix this? Our sin, as it separates us from God, the resulting eternity of suffering is that we'll be under God's righteous judgment. The Bible says God judges sin as wrong, and he will judge all sin. Eventually, to a place called hell, a place of darkness, pain, and evil. When we hear news about terrible wars, when we hear about shootings in our local communities, when we hear about child abuse, we cry out, God, why don't you do something? How can you be a loving God and let all of these things happen? What we're really asking for is, God, will you please judge this sin? Why aren't you doing something about it? Why aren't you judging these people or these wars or these atrocities? The Bible says God will judge all sin and it will all be punished by separation from him. That's comforting if you're the one who's been a victim. If you're the one who has had injustice done against you, you say, yay, judgment, yay, punishment. Let's make sure they get what is coming to them. But it's also deeply troubling when we realize that we are also sinful. Every one of us is deserving of judgment. Not because I'm a little better than my neighbor or that person or that person, but because it's God's standard that I can't live up to. It keeps us from knowing God, from enjoying God, and it keeps us from glorifying God. I'm not quite there yet, Elena. Thanks. It's because we reject his authority and it's because we are capable of the greatest selfishness and the darkest evil. Isn't that the question we hear on the news? How could this happen? How could this happen? We hear of something and we hear of something even worse and think, how could someone do that? sin. That person wanted what they wanted and didn't care about anyone else. And if we look at our own hearts, we've done the same thing. Maybe not at a scale that we're hearing on the news, but we have hurt people around us and we're all capable of that same evil. But then we experience the joys of Christmas. We spend time with family. We enjoy good food It's not even Christmas yet, and I I need to go on a diet. It's leading up to it. All the good food, listening to good music, giving presents, getting presents, all the things that we could want. And then there's a letdown the holiday blues. I didn't get that one thing, or this person wasn't there, so it wasn't as good as it could have been. It wasn't perfect. We realize that nothing is going to fill us. No matter how great the gift, no matter how epic the family vacation is, or the experience of skiing, or going on a balloon ride, or whatever you think is going to be the best thing ever, you realize it's not filling a hole in your heart. We can't remove the sin and we can't fill that emptiness on our own. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay for our sin, just like that lamb paid the price for the Israelites. In my first year of driving, from age 17 to 18, I had four accidents so, those of you that are looking for a ride and say, don't get a ride with Pastor Mark, I'm a much better driver now. It's been decades since I'd have a real accident. I've bumped into the trailer here and there, but haven't had another car accident in a long time. But in that first four years, driving in the New Jersey suburbs where there are a lot of people, even 30 years ago, I had my new license and I made some mistakes. I had errors of judgment in timing. I thought I could get it through a light before the other person got there. I didn't pay attention to this person passing me before I got over and hit their bumper. I got blindsided by a taxi cab in New York City who had no insurance. Four, no, sorry, two of the cars were total. Three of the cars were total. Not because they were great cars. They were not great cars to begin with, but... It didn't take a lot to total them, but three of the four accidents, the car was totaled. With every accident, someone had to pay. The very first one where I sideswiped someone, I said, please don't tell the insurance company. I don't even want to tell my parents. I will give you the money. I've got some money in my account. Let me know how much it takes to fix your bumper. And I just wrote a check for a couple hundred dollars as a 17-year-old. and I was like, just make this go away. The other ones were so big that the insurance company and the police had to be involved, and someone paid. Someone paid for those accidents to fix both cars, or in my case, to get mine to the junkyard because it wasn't worth fixing. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't ignore the spoiling and the separation that it causes. He cares about the devastation that sin causes in your life, in the lives of the people around you, in the world he created perfect. He sees that, and it hurts God. It pains him to see his creation suffering under the weight of sin. He cares when people reject his authority, not because he needs to be right all the time, because he is right all the time. He knows that what he has prescribed for us is best. And when we choose something lesser, it's never going to be as good as what God has for us. His perfect justice calls for payment for all sin. Just like loving, caring parents are not going to ignore their children's willful disobedience. They're not going to ignore the harm that it brings to themselves or to someone else. God, as our perfect Heavenly Father, has to address and He has to punish sin. And the problem, as I've alluded to already, is we can't pay the price ourselves. We can't be the one to pay. God's Word says that all of our good deeds, everything we could ever do on our own, is just like a pile of dirty rags compared to God's righteousness. There's no comparison. We don't even get close We miss that mark so far. But someone has to pay. Who can do this? In verse 77, Zechariah says, the Lord will bring forgiveness of their sins. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from Rome. They were looking for a Messiah to come and give them freedom from oppression. And John the Baptist, the forerunner, Zechariah says, you're going to come and tell people how they can be saved, how they can be forgiven, how they can have peace with God. He has visited us. He has come to dwell with his people and to redeem us, to pay the price for your sins and mine, to free us from God's just punishment. And then we can know God. We can have peace with God, and we can live with him forever. So it's really a question of definition. The heart of the good news of Christmas is understanding our predicament. Unless we properly define sin, we can't understand why we need God or why we needed Jesus to come to the earth. We have to define sin in God's terms, not ours. In his book, again, Alistair Begg refers to a survey where Christians were asked, I'm sorry, Americans were asked to define sin. 17% of the people in this survey mentioned God in the definition of sin. 83% of us saw sin as something negative, something bad in my life that impacted me. Usually, it was something someone else did to me Or it was something that I just need to clean up, a bad habit, something I can put on my New Year's list and yeah, I'll give up sweets for a while. That's, That's something bad. I'll take care of it. With that definition of sin, no one needs a Savior. People don't understand the need for Jesus to come to the earth on that very first Christmas without understanding that there is a need for someone to pay for our sin. Missing the mark, missing God's standard of righteousness. And even though my sin may impact others, even though it may hurt me personally, my sin is against God first and foremost. And that's again part of our definition. Well, what I'm doing doesn't hurt anybody else. So it's okay. I'm not really bothering anybody. Let me just do what I want leaving God completely out of it. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. David recognized his sin was against God. So Jesus didn't come just to fix the broken pieces in your life, to give you stability, to help you feel better about yourself. He didn't come to establish a Sunday morning religion where you come to recharge your batteries and smile and have really good cookies and good coffee and just Make it through the next week. That's not why the Savior gave his life. He didn't come so that you could become a nicer person. He didn't come to make you happy. The promised Messiah, the Son of God, came because you and I are drowning. We're pulled down the weight by the weight of our sin. We're miles from an unreachable shore. He didn't row up to us in his boat and say, good job, keep going, paddle a little bit more. There's the shore a mile off. You can do it. Instead, you need someone to reach down, someone strong enough to pull you into that boat and to row you to the shore. Only when and if you recognize that you're drowning and you have no hope of saving yourself, only then will you reach out to that hand offered to you. The Bible says God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. God has offered his hand through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and said, I want to have peace with you. I want you to know me. I want you to be forgiven and saved. Just take my hand. There's nothing I've done to earn that. It's God offering us eternal life. And so Zechariah sings this song of praise about his son John. And I love the part in verse 76 where it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Just imagine Zechariah holding him in his arms, saying, You, my son, are the prophet of the Most High. You're going to let people know that the Savior is coming. And John did that. His ministry was going out and calling people to be baptized and repent of their sins and say, hold on, the Lord is coming. I'm not the one, but he's coming. And when he sees Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. His ministry was done at that point. He had pointed people to Jesus, and now it was up to people to say, yes, Jesus, we believe in you. We trust you as our Messiah. And as Zechariah is praying this, he couldn't help but sing a song of praise, ending or beginning with, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So our question of the day was, why do you need God? Can you answer that question for yourself now? Why do you need God? Why do I need any of this? Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas? It's because God was visiting his people. He came to live in the neighborhood. He came to free us from sin, to redeem us from slavery to sin, to bring peace on earth between man and God. I need God because I can't pay for my own sins. I can't do anything on my own. I need to trust in the work of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for me. In our next two Sundays, we're going to answer the questions, how did he come and then how did he do it? If you've never seen yourself as a sinner, If you've always thought that you're doing pretty good and you're doing a little bit better than the people around you, then you're gonna miss that hand reaching out to you saying, let me save you. But today, I hope that as you heard God's word explaining what sin is and what its effects are, then you would recognize, yes, I am a sinner. And the Bible calls that repentance, saying, God, I'm a sinner and I can't do anything about it. Please forgive me, please save me. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and proving that he was God, he rose again to eternal life so that I can have eternal life. That is the gospel. That is salvation. So if you've never recognized that, then I would encourage you to accept God's offer of salvation. Let it be today. Let this be the first Christmas where you sit on Christmas Eve and say, I get it now, I get it. This isn't just a story about a cute baby and two parents who didn't have a place to stay the night. It's about God visiting his people and redeeming them, the savior of the world. Will you accept his offer of salvation? It's the greatest gift of Christmas. Come talk to me after the service. If you're watching with us online, you can contact me through the website, but I would love to sit down with you and explain how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have already trusted Jesus, are you living like John? Do you consider yourself a spokesperson for God? Are you here to tell people, there's the Savior, follow him? Instead of judging people, Instead of looking down at them while they're thrashing around in the water saying, I need help. And we're just going, look what you've done. Haven't you gotten yourself into a mess now? I've been guilty of that. Looking at people and saying, wow, they're getting just what they deserved. Well, what do I deserve? I deserve punishment too. But by the grace of God, he reached out and saved me. Are you telling people Instead of judging them, grab Jesus' hand and be saved. Point them to the one who can redeem them. And then, like John, who can you bring with you? Next week as we have our third Advent Sunday, a neighbor, a family friend, someone that needs to hear the good news of Christmas, who will you bring with you to hear that? Write down their name in your note sheet. Pray for that person through the week. Maybe it's a family in your neighborhood. And just pray that you'll have an opportunity to say, do you want to come to church with me this Christmas? I'd love to bring you. I'll pick you up at 9.15. We'll make sure we get good seats. We have the good news of salvation. We don't want to keep it to ourselves. Mark's going to come. We're going to close in another beautiful Christmas song. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for coming and visiting your creation, for redeeming your people, for offering the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Lord, let us not keep that amazing gift to ourselves, but help us share it with others and help us live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. Help us choose to read your word, to obey your word instead of choosing my own way. Now may God, the Father of hope, fill you with all peace and joy in believing in his Son, Jesus Christ, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow with his great love. I pray this in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.